0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Sun I Have Cancer podcast. I am Sam Ketch and I am once again joined by...
1: Me, hey, his dad, Chris.
0: Yes, the one with cancer. Now, we have sadly uh, had to re-record this episode because of some technical difficulties. Um, so whilst I promised to get into the comment about university in the last episode that father made, uh, we won't be doing that because we've had that conversation three times already and I don't think anyone wants an inauthentic conversation about that so, or unauthentic, whichever it is. I know you would have corrected me if I hadn't said that. So in today's episode, we are going to go back to talking about recovery. Obviously, episode two was about recovery, but it was during that initial phase um once you'd returned home from your surgery and the time you spent away from work now there is about i don't know an 18 month period from today back to when you first went to work so we're not going to cover all of that period uh we're going to try and focus this episode into the coronavirus part of the recovery because while we're still going through it there's an important discussion to be had about the lack of care for cancer patients and patients without coronavirus um, during especially during lockdown um, from the NHS now there's no blame attached from my side or yours on the NHS for doing so it would have been wrong probably to drag cancer patients into hospitals when they also were dealing with patients with a disease which there was no protection From Now, the first question, obviously, I need to ask you about is, you know, how has the coronavirus affected treatment? Because in the last episode, we were talking about how you were getting tests monthly, seeing a consultant. Talk me through, talk everyone through how the coronavirus affected that.
1: I think... So I'm on the watchful waiting pathway, which starts off at pre monthly, um, monthly visits to the consultant. Uh, you, so the routine is to the GP, get bloods done, and turn up and see the consultant. Um, then January time, when I went to see him, the PSA number which is the blood test they do to see how the cancer is circulating around my body was started to increase and we were back to talking about um, going away for a scan to to Liverpool or some other exciting place Birmingham as well and um, what happened was I saw the consultant and he Said he'd see me in a much more timely fashion. So I think in January, I was going to see him. The end of February, which became the first week of March. And then what happened was I didn't see him. I saw his registrar, who was very ill-prepared and seemed embarrassed at talking about men's bodies, incontinence, impotence, men's genitals, or anything to do with... The business he was in which was urology. Um, so he became very awkward. I'd gone with lots of questions around prognosis, treatment timescales. Uh, I prepared, usually I'd take a couple of questions, I'd got to the point where, like a lot of people, think you can ad lib these things but actually you need a structure of just a couple of questions so you know Wage you going. So mine was usually, what's the blood test show? What do you suggest? What are the options? And his script is usually, how's your love life? Uh, how's the water works? Um, are you still doing pelvic floor exercises? And it was almost like um, a ritual as well structured as the Japanese tea party. So what would happen is I went in on this occasion, didn't see him, although he, he was in the building. Uh, he'd been around quite a bit and greeted me. So I was a bit surprised I get to see him, but he had a another patient to see, which seemed to take priority over his usual people. And the guy I saw was, was not very helpful. And when I was asking him around prognosis and things like, you know, secondaries are usually lungs or bones, what about it, was I in the five-year cohort post- post-operation or the ten-year cohort given the results so far. He, he got very diff- defensive, very awkward and then suddenly blurted out I should go away and make memories so I had to point out to him that's not something you say to someone who's well and that having worked in the social and healthcare business for a long time that's usually something you say to someone who's quite ill and he then backtracked on that and said, no, no, that wasn't the case at all. But that he felt I was making much more of it. And I said, well, I'm just going on the information I've got um, based on what uh, the consultant had said. So we, we left in a very unsatisfactory fashion with an agreement that I'd have an appointment in six weeks and see the consultant. I said that was early March. Then in... Late March, March 23rd, it has in a lockdown game. So I rang up on the first week of April and asked, because you don't need to speak to your consultant secretary or anybody to do with him, you go through a switchboard, which is the appointment helpline, and they tell you about your appointments, supporting themselves with an IT system. And what happened was I was told the appointments had been cancelled, which was then a fortnight later translated when i rang up to just find out what was happening that they were going to go to telephone consultations only and i was on the list and i'd get one and so i left it till the end of april and that point i was still on a waiting list i rang up mid-may the end of may And finally, in August, I was told I'd get a consultation on September the 14th. And um, what happened is I was all set to go and find a quiet corner at work with my um, mobile phone to take the call. And I'd made sure my mobile phone was up on. I'd unlocked it and everything and it went off in my hand and someone introduced themselves as being from the uh, clinic and that uh, my appointment had been cancelled because there was no consultant and that was about five to eleven and my appointment was eleven o'clock which left me sitting looking rather foolishly around an office thinking what do I do now
0: It's quite shameful. I think that's the word I would use personally, um, that we've had our conversations about the NHS the last two episodes about how we do support it. We are fans of it, not that we, like, gather with our scarves and stuff like football hooligans and start fighting over whether or not it's a good thing. But, you know, we support it. We want more money going into it because, ultimately... (laughs) that story right there is something that I don't think people quite understand. When people talk about, you know, how good the NHS is, it's good if you've got a cough and a cold, and you can turn up for, you know, a little bit of medication with the sniffles. But you've got cancer, you need to know the information regularly, and you're not getting the phone call. You know, you're saying yourself that you're on a You know, every six weeks, between March and now September—that's six months—without any contact. And the fact that you were on the day, prepared, waiting for the call five minutes before they ring you up to say the people who we need aren't here. It's the fact that if there's two hours before that, it's the start of the day. Oh, we've got these consultations today, but they're not in. Right, ring them up. It can't have taken them. Two hour well, an hour and 55 minutes to ring up everybody on the list who is supposed to get a phone call. That's very much last gasp. Oh, they're at 11 o'clock. We'll ring them up and just tell them not to wait around for this call. I, I find it, and I don't know if shameful is the right word to use. I don't know if people will maybe find that a bit unfair, but I would say that, you know, for an institution that is funded by the taxpayer to not serve its constituents is. Yeah, I'd I'd say it's shameful. Um, I don't want to make this all about my opinions, but I think it's quite important that as the son, as the impacted people, I get to say my piece because obviously you can't turn around and say this stuff is shameful. It would impact your career, your uh, the care. I'm not saying they wouldn't give you care because you said the NHS is doing a bad job of it, but ultimately these people, if they heard you'd said that, would be less inclined to help. I do find it, from a personal perspective, quite embarrassing, really, that we're also proud of something that doesn't work.
1: And, you know, given some of your other political views earlier on, it's quite a care for someone like yourself to go, go through from being quite a a radical socialist challenging our perceptions, and committed to the NHS to that acknowledgement, which is it's one of the largest institutions in Europe, the biggest employer certainly in Europe, and that it's not responsive. And I think the other side of it, which we've touched on in the past, is that issue of men's health. Um, Mm. I don't have a key nurse. I don't have an access to the consultant other than through... A switchboard a couple of times. I have managed when I've needed to, to to get through to his secretary, but they've always been surprised. They've had to use the guile and and craft of the job I do, which is not open to everyone. And the other side of it is when you talk about cancer, people see the, the adverts on the TV. They see the, the nice awards, printed bright colours, with the nicer new furniture in men's health urology is just a a room which probably hasn't had uh, a serious makeover in five years and it's well managed you're not sitting for hours to where your your granddad was when i used to take him to his outpatient appointments Mm -hmm. but it's not slick and there's some basics you'd think of named nurse person to contact key number that aren't there and I'm not sure what it's like in other parts of the country, but you could argue if you wanted to, and I'm sure it's the argument that would be offered, is I've been empowered by being directed towards um, websites and being given an envelope full of leaflets, a DVD, and a CD, and they are very interesting and they are very informative. And whenever I've got a sleepless night, I can always read a pamphlet, or go and watch a DVD. It's not the same as ringing somebody up and having a conversation where you can cut to the chase and say, right now, the thing that's bothering me is this, and then that's what you talk about. I think one of my uh, uh, wishes is that, as I've probably passed on the genetics to yourself, from your granddad to me to you, that if you do fall foul of prostate cancer you have um, a much better treatment a much better response and a much better service yeah,
0: I, I, I'd, I'd like to weigh in two things first I didn't, say, I didn't say it at the time because I thought I'd let you get away with it but radical socialist doesn't help my career uh, I don't think many papers will want to employ someone who has been described on record as a radical socialist so I would argue that just a socialist who has become a democratic socialist and is very centrist now. Thank you. Because I want a job when I'm older. Um, but also, yeah, uh, we touched on it and it was sort of the end of an episode, the end of the first one. Um, 25% of men have prostate cancer or get prostate cancer. And with every, um, passing generation, you're 20%, 25% more likely uh, to pass it on to your uh, male heir. I don't know. That's probably far too fancy of a phrase, but, you know, grandad had it, that's 25%. You've had it, that's 50%. I already had the 25% chance, that's 75%. I'm not saying it's guarantee, but probably, I think, they start saying you should go for tests at 45 is that right i mean yeah that's
1: australia and america so
0: so realistically probably that on my 45th birthday my birthday treat will be to go and get tested and see if it's if it has passed on very early admittedly but you know that's something i now have to consider something that is you know the important thing about men's health and the important thing about this podcast is that we do discuss that Uh, i saw it was um suicide awareness or suicide prevention day last week um whilst uh, i think it was the day after we'd recorded the last episode so it didn't obviously didn't occur to me to talk about it in the podcast but you know uh this podcast isn't about suicide but in terms of men's health men are far more likely to commit suicide. And I do think that actually ill health, the inability to get help for it. And as you say, the, the adverts we see on TV for cancer or Bright Wards and you know people being given good care, that's not the experience you had. I think the NHS perhaps has an I- issue, society has an issue with helping men discuss their health or get help with their health i think we still have a bit of an attitude towards men's health where it's you're fine like you know if it's not a broken leg or if it's not something extremely visible then it's not a thing and um yeah I, i didn't want to take too much time away from the conversation about uh prostate cancer and the cancer that spread during the time of corona but I did think that might have been a, a necessary addition to talk about those things because yeah, I, I think men's health doesn't get the not it doesn't get the care it needs essentially because I don't think many men are particularly keen to throw themselves in and get help when there's a minor ailment, let's say.
1: Yeah. And I think you know, that the success of movements like Movember and generally any of the campaigns around men seeking help are very important and should be encouraged. And if, you know, whatever your gender, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever identifier you have, men's health is something we should champion and and take seriously and try and promote because. Men are, not just some abstract notion of gender identification, but fathers, sons, brothers.
0: I think it's perhaps most telling is that in schools you have a wear pink for breast cancer awareness day. There isn't anything similar to that for Movember or for men's health. You know, I'm not saying that there has to be a day where you go in and wear, I don't know, whatever, blue and you have to show awareness for men's health. But, you know, at the end of the day, if there is a day for breast cancer awareness, which is uh, female cancer, um, then why is there not something similar for, you know, Movember is something that you opt in to do. It's not like a, you know, a thing that people do. It's not a massive charity. It's not this huge 80 million people start it and all of them finish it because it's a monthly thing it's you know growing a moustache is essentially the if people haven't heard of november the month of november you grow a moustache in um what's i don't know the right word in sort of a show of unity for men's health sort of something which uh because cancer patients struggle with i guess was the original meaning anyway that's all. That's all too much uh, on November. It's too
1: grand. It's too big. Yes, it's much yes. for you and I.
0: Yeah. So let's let's go back. You've got cancer. You're on the watchful waiting pathway. Um, we know it's spread up to 0.7. What does all of that mean? You mentioned the bones and the lungs. Obviously, I've had my own little research into it and i know bones lungs and liver um are the three that prostate when it gets into the lymph nodes usually spread to um or are the most likely let's say um what does all of it mean especially given you're not being seen to due due to the coronavirus which we have covered
1: i think it becomes one of those matters of, of living with anxiety, I guess, it's living through a period of anxiety. It's it's all sorts of things. I think we've said in some of the conversations, uh, re- returning to work is quite um, a shock to the system because you suddenly realise that you don't look ill to other people So as far as they're concerned. You're tickety-boo, you're fine, you're you know, full of... Uh, Vim and vigor and healthy and good to go. So, if you ever have a bad day, they're always a bit surprised and think you might be you know, taking the piss, swinging the lead, playing the old soldier. So, it's very hard to um get some sort of level of what's going on for yourself. I went back to work and started out in a bit of project work to ease me back in, which is very interesting. But even then, you found well, it's, again, it's a conversation we have, I think, and I guess it's what we're going to recur to at different points in these podcasts. My experience is, although people ask, it's a social politeness, it's cocktail chatter, and not many of people really want to know the, the significance of your anxiety, so you've got to gauge your, your response to people. Being at work means you've got a distraction, but at the same time, You've got something which doesn't always help you manage living with an illness. So the anxieties such as, how well am I? When's it going to reappear? How will I cope with it? Am I prepared for it in any way? Um, What do I need to do to help other people? All of those sorts of things are um, so in the back of your mind, and it, it can, if you if you allow it to, you can become incredibly introspective, incredibly morbidly melancholic about things, and that doesn't help. And I remember you being seriously amused, and we haven't used this phrase yet, but one of the things that um, people always say when you're healthy is a positive mental attitude and uh, given you stereotype me as this grungy or grumpy old man to say positive mental attitude might uh, quite surprise yourself but you've got to take the positives and things you've got to focus on the positives and you've got to live on not knowing means don't go creating fantasies of what it is don't go imagining the worst because in the end what you're dealing with at that time isn't the fact you know, that there the used to be in the height of the cold War something called the atomic clock and what that was was um, scientists calculating how near we were to the eve of destruction and it was always something like 30 seconds to the, the end of the day sort of thing and that you could, in the 1980s, when we were very concerned about the prospect of nuclear war, get um, hung up on that, and I could get hung up on not knowing the fact that it's going to appear somewhere, and I've got to sit back and and get on with life, and get on with the doing of life, the going to work, the earning the money, um, doing the boring chores around the house. As tempting as it might be to say blow a lot of it, sell up everything, buy a Winnebago and drive around the world. I'm still not convinced that I've done that sort of thing many years ago. Returning to rough sleeping and camping is really what I want to do in my later years. and I quite like first-class travel and first-class hotels because if I've saved and worked... uh, Go for that trade up from three to four stars any chance you can, and if you can get up to five stars, then go for it um, the, the reality is
0: that sounded uh, like know, advice, I must say it sounded more like a sort of you know rather than a, a matter of fact statement about what you do. It sounded more like you know if you 've worked hard, just take any opportunity to upgrade your hotel upgrade when you your can. life, yeah.
1: yeah. Upgrade your life, yeah. Whenever you can, upgrade your life. That's my words of wisdom to you. Hmm. Always trade up. Um, But that no, is how you, you end up coping with things, is trying to get how I end up coping with things. Other people have different ways. I, um, sometimes I think it'd be quite nice to have a, a faith and be able to believe in a God or some sort of meaning to life. I've not had uh, success in accepting those philosophies. They've never met my needs they might in the next few years as fear of death takes over and the anxiety about what's it all been about looking for a purpose behind it all um you know that's that's not really worked for me um and again it's, you've always at it, it's what have i done what have i found um i guess i can't remember if we've I lost this in the last episode, or I've said it before. I was um, looking back, as you, as you do, when you get to my age and your youth, you suddenly realise some of the things which at the time are quite traumatic were actually quite liberating. So when I was your age, it was the height of the statue, and the last big recession and unemployment in the North was significant. So my work experience was just that. There were schemes called work experience in which the government paid people to give you work, usually part-time work, so you could have three or four days working and then one or two days looking for a proper job. And that around the area I grew up in didn't really work because most of the significant industries had gone, so Older people and people in their 20s were all on different sorts of schemes from anywhere between six months to two years trying to get into a proper job. But what that did for me is the time when I, I was between jobs, or as actors would say resting, meant I got some sense of things that I valued in life. And although I didn't have any money, and it meant that I was about 10 years behind where statisticians and accountants and bankers think you should be in making a living and making a way in life I did get to sit in the park, socialise with people um, mess around with um, amateur theatre groups go off and do photography and things and and try things out which I've never made a living at but at the time are quite important to me Um, and that means that in my mind, I go and make a living and earn the end of money because I'm having a comfortable life, having a family to provide for is what you do, and it's better to be part of that system than try and book it because being poor wasn't fun. But having time was was really quite important. One of the things I actually regret is the amount of time I've squandered at work, the late nights, the allowing people to book meetings into my time, uh, when I should be saying no, I've got to go. Because you know I have been flippant about it, work's very important, you're going to have to work till you're 70, you're going to have to earn a living, Um, we aren't incredibly wealthy, you're not going to be able to sit back and live on any sort of pot of money you're going to get. But if work was such a big thing, the rich people would hold on to it, and they'd be the ones working and We'd be the ones sat in the sun in the south of France. And that's something which you always hear when people are unemployed, politicians saying everyone should be at work. Well, there are alternatives, you know. There was once uh, an idea that we could share not, share, not, share out the world's wealth between all the people in it so that people didn't have to to work as long hours. You know, we have a culture of people working 45, 50, sometimes even 60 hours, while other people are unemployed. And that's that's actually quite odd, when we could share out the work we have and have more time to do the things that are, allow people to define themselves as individuals, offer people fulfilment. Some people are lucky, they get to do a job that allows them to fulfil their identity, make a mark, Most people sell their labour for something that they're interested in and gives them a reasonable return so they can have a comfortable life. And the decisions you make, when I was younger, the things I thought I might do before I realised I I didn't have the Latin, and there's a, a joke there for people who know it, I thought about being a lawyer, which is one of the reasons I do what I do now is that the law, social justice, um, trying to make a difference in society was something that's always been important to me. But I thought about journalism, I thought about writing and doing stuff on the stage for a while when I was employed because it was something I could access and do. And I think all of us have those sort of daydreams things when people do a different job, but they stay where they are because they have to make a living at it and you know getting to a point where you think oh all those meetings uh, they haven't really achieved as much as we thought we were going to do and one or two people think it's the most important thing in the world and the rest of you join into that so staying at work late for a meeting going in early for a meeting not spending time with you Um, when I looked after your granddad when he was on his own and ill slotting that in at the end of the day so I'd you know Turn up on his doorstep, tea time, tired because I'd been up since early hours, going to work, doing work, things, and trying to look after him and give him some quality of life wasn't, um, wasn't always easy. And I think there's times when he must have been very fed up with me looking miserable, and I was probably very stressed with him being very needy. Um, so, yeah, that's a rambly answer for you.
0: It's it's given an insight that perhaps we hadn't, you know, considered, which is that throughout, you know, these episodes, we'll be covering life outside of everything that actually is normal life. This is a, sounds weird to say it, but five years ago, this wasn't a, a thing in our lives. There wasn't a, a concern about slotting in time to worry and panic about, Health and illness and stuff like that. It was very much you went to work, you came home from work. I get to joke that you would sleep all the time, you know. But the reality is that what I'm discovering, and you know, people might think that this is a surprise, but what I'm learning is exactly, I'm learning these things at exactly the same time as people listening are because we don't, we're not a serious like we don't converse about the the big world issues daily. We're not we're not that kind of father and son. We we try and keep things light and breezy. You know, we don't we spend more time laughing, joking, which, you know, then when big serious things do come up leads to arguments, I suppose. So that's why the stuff that I'm learning is being learned now is because i'm not going to sit here and shout at you on a on a podcast about you know the two coming together in unity with your ill health but yeah i i don't know i find i find all of it particularly i i liked your point about rich people talking about you know everyone needing to work whilst also spending most of their time in caribbean islands and stuff and not working but yeah it's it's a feature of my life is not getting to spend as much time with you because of work and obviously now being a 20 year old going back to university shortly for my second year having spent a year out with the news of your illness and then wasting that year not spending any time with you um it's it's always interesting to hear your perspective on that which is that you also regret not spending as much time with me now I don't want this to get into a very emotional two men crying about not spending enough time together so I think we've covered the fact that we avoid the serious but what what about actually you know just what have you learned in that time being back at work maybe during the coronavirus about living with cancer what have you experienced that you know the rest of us who haven't had cancer whilst living through a pandemic haven't had to consider because obviously you didn't get the we didn't cover it because we avoided talking about coronavirus on the whole but you didn't get the letter you were made to keep going into the office um you know essentially you lived like a a normal key worker who had full good health uh you worked in an office rather than on the front lines but you still had to, you know, work with other people in an office during a global pandemic. So what what is living through that like when you have an illness that is going to put you at risk?
1: I think COVID I talked about things that put put your own position into perspective. There's always, uh, some people haven't had the advantages I have and I haven't had the advantages other people have had. So when you've got a virus that's killing people, I'd say at random because when it first appeared, we didn't see the patterns, we didn't have the projections and the, what the people in the business called the metrics, the numbers and to plot things. So it was very frightening and to suddenly see... Um, yeah. A, a tally on the news of the number of people who died above and beyond the usual number of people who should have died on that day was very, yeah, frightening. Yeah, you know? because whatever we perceive, the the idea that um, human beings have perfected everything and we are on top of our game and We've uh, beaten nature into submission and there's nothing much we can't sort out. What COVID has taught us is our sort of grasp on things is, is very tenuous. And we, it depends on your world view. Um, we've already hinted at the fact that my views are possibly not as centrist as yours. So I'm very interested in how the pharmaceutical industry can concentrate on some things and not others and how, within the world, we give power to people who would rather build mass weapons of mass destruction than even something like effective contraception that's not going to damage people's health, because there's not much money in that, but there is a lot of pleasure, I guess. Um, that whole set of how we live, what our priorities are as, as a civilizations, is is brought to the fore on a personal level you do suddenly think oh you yeah, know there's always somebody worse off than me looking at how covid changed the world it was a sense of um a sense of not in the, i can speak of the uk i can speak of england in other parts of the world treated things differently but i think our society, how we're living now with this government, is very much around two very distinct messages, which at a time of crisis don't work. You can't have a government of libertarians who don't believe in government at a time when you need the government to act and lead and make decisions and help our, us manage our lives. So there are certain things at a time of crisis that uh, not happy about but you shrug your shoulders and accept certain basic liberties but I never thought going to the pub was you know one of those great liberties I don't really in my mind when I look back at history imagine the great revolutions of people saying you know we must overthrow this dictatorship and all go to the pub you know, I don't think Martin Luther King's dream of equality for the races actually had the line, and I imagine everyone down the pub drinking lager. So to have politicians talk about going to the pub as this fundamental freedom, this has knocked me a little bit. It was also shown how, and again, this is specific to the to England, Wales, and probably Scotland. People have no idea how the NHS works. They've no idea how fundamental services work, and it's it's really interesting that most people are lucky enough to get their knowledge of the NHS from Holby City, and you're not confronted by that until there's a pandemic, and you suddenly you suddenly it's a really bizarre world. So, you know, suddenly people who run the country have discovered care homes are outsourced from the management of any local government, any national government. Most people who are in a care home, most older people, most people with a disability, so significant that they can't live at home, are cared for by private companies. They are cared for by charitable organisations. And that really surprised people. And as someone who works in the business of social and healthcare, to listen to the news and have very experienced senior journalists turn around to say to other people who are part of the decision making chattering classes of this country how wrong it is that you know, care homes are in such a state and it's a bit like where have you been for the last where are we now 2020? 35 years and it just shows you how the poor the elderly people who are dependent on others for care are I'm not at the forefront of people. And, you know, yeah, your mum went out and applauded the NHS and banged the tin lids and things like the neighbours did. And it was very important that we came together and had that moment of pulling together. But I think, for me, I've just been more aware of the divisions in society mm-hmm. between those people who who are involved in how things work and what happens.
0: Well, yeah, it feels a million years ago that mum was... I, we we are both saying mum here. We do want to stress, we love the NHS, but we knew what the clap every Thursday night was for. It was a symbolic gesture. Boris pretends that he's not all for those and that that's not part of his political game, but it wasn't anything meaningful. You know, in, in fact... Down the street, I would argue that probably of everyone, there are three people who are deserving of that applause. Mum, who was a nurse and then you know, committed her entire career. Win. I'm not saying that you're not more gifted uh, than the job you do, but mum's talents exceed the roles she committed her life to, which were on the whole for helping other people the same goes for yourself. You both technically have NHS or um, uh, not working at the moment. So not, not the case, but yourself with you, you have an NHS badge, you work with helping people. And obviously Helen is a cleaner at the hospital. So is on the front line. And it's, it's perhaps peculiar that the street all came out and applauded for these people that they'd never met, never seen. Whereas, You, myself and Helen who was off at work, we didn't do that applause. Mum did because she wanted to be seen by the neighbours as partaking. But we both stayed inside and it feels like a long time ago that we were doing that. But it's because it was just a gesture and there was no real, you know, importance to it.
1: I think where we are, there's... There are two people. There's definitely one nurse and one person who works properly in the NHS. But if you think we went out and applauded, I think there are some people who were surprised to realise that their neighbour worked as a nurse. And I think there's a, a guy who lives close to us who works for the same people as me. And even though we are three houses away, he was surprised to realise that we work to the same employer. And it just shows you how we don't value those things. We don't turn around and say, you know, a person delivering care to someone who's frail, elderly, beginning to suffer from some form of dementia, which not wanting to To lose your sympathy, I think cancer is bad, but dementia is worse because dementia, you die. People just think of dementia as mental illness and forgetting. But as your brain turns to sponge, what it stops doing is managing your bodily functions. I'm not just talking about incontinence when I say that, I'm talking about commanding your lungs to breathe, commanding bits of your body to work. So what you have is an illness that, that takes away. Your identity because you lose your personality, you lose who mm-hmm. you are, and your body stops working. And the people who care for those people are paid minimum wage. They are, you know, as, as we discovered, people were, were sent out of hospital to free up beds. And and hold that in mind. Imagine for a second we're on a ship and it's sinking. And we're suddenly deciding to leave the women and children and old people on the ship because they don't matter. And all the healthy people are getting in the lifeboats and rowing away. That is what we did by moving people who had not been tested into care homes with older people who are part of a demographic that all the metrics said were most at risk of that illness. And that was a clear clinical decision. It was made by senior politicians. It was made by senior civil servants that that was a course of action. We cleared the hospitals to free up space to protect the NHS for those sick people. Mm. Fine, that's a difficult decision. It's what senior people are paid to do. But if you're going to make a decision like that, as a leader, you own it. You stand up and you tell people you're making it and explain why you're making it. And that was never done. But what it showed is the... The disregard for older people, and I have, I'm sure, said this because it is one of my pet things, is we live in a society which doesn't value older people. In a capitalist society, older people are consumers of resources, but they don't produce anything. Therefore, we mock them. They are one group in society that comedians can still make derogatory comments about and won't have their contracts cancelled you can still do an impression of an older person. and you won't be censured the way you would be if as a man you were to do an impression of a woman or appear in what I think is still called blackface as an actor. You know? Well, there's a reason for that. I do
0: want to pick up on that. And uh, I'd I'd like to say that you don't have to explain that reason. I think you have done that. And I would like to say that in all of this stuff, you were mentioning, you know, you don't want to lose my sympathy, but dementia is worse than cancer. I agree. I think we've had the conversation. And when I said mum committed her life, you did exactly the same thing to help people with those illnesses. I'm not trying to expose what job you do. I know that's a, a thing we like to keep anonymous, but ultimately you both gave your careers to helping people like that. You weren't, you know, they're nurses and you weren't, but you were making decisions in the local region that impacted those people and you were both trying to care for the people and I'm not gonna out your colleagues and mum's old colleagues but the conversations always sound as though there's a battle between look after the money to free it up so you can spend and have more stuff done versus people like you and mum who looked at it as well hold on these are people we need to look after people regardless of the and you know that might be wrong I don't want to get into you explaining how that's wrong but that's how it always how I always perceived it was you and mum spent your careers trying to help the forgotten people in society which are the people who as you say they're old they've earned the right to not work anymore because they've spent a full career already they're at an age where they don't have to work anymore and so society does as you say turn around and just forgets them disrespects them you know does whatever they want to do to not show any respect for people who have ultimately laid the foundations for the the world that those people who mock them live in you know it'd be wrong for me to say that I haven't made gags about old people and, you know, it'd yes, be wrong.
1: you do. And I'm not that old.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you get my point is everyone, everyone can hold up the sanctimonious light to society and say, look at how much is wrong in it. And so many people then, are, you know, fall foul of making the same mistakes that they criticize. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm an angel who never makes mistakes, but I do see the world in a similar way to you. I know we've had the, we've already discussed political leanings, so we're not going to do that again because we've spent enough time talking about being left of centre people. Um, We don't want to turn everyone away from the podcast. But yeah, I think you're right. Your job is about looking after old people. A lot of decisions were made during the coronavirus that put old people at risk. And, you know, you can feel aggrieved yourself. I'm going to sort of, wrap up that question by saying that people like yourself with illnesses were also put at risk because they're gonna have the conversation soon I'm pretty sure Piers Morgan will be pushing it soon enough about how you get the health service to look after all the new cases and all the rising numbers and all the rising hospital hospitalizations of people with the coronavirus whilst still looking after people like yourself like anybody else with a pre-existing illness that you know puts you at risk you can't be in the same room as someone with it because it it's more likely to affect you that you know people with asthma can't be in the same room because it's more likely to affect them so how you divide up wards and everything like that is a conversation and you know the the as you say people make decisions they should be able to rationalize them This government is not interested in doing that. It will be very interesting to see if they bring back their daily press conferences, because I think that that's the only opportunity we had of seeing some explanation of things that were done during the first lockdown. Um, But still, they were quite good at hiding stuff. Um, Yeah, I think we've covered everything about Corona uh, recovery. Not corona recovery, recovery during corona. Um, you haven't actually had the virus. Um, no, I yeah. had a test. The you did have a it, test. It, it was,
1: I did. It was and exciting. they couldn't
0: take your result the first time round, right?
1: I have a very bad gag reflex and didn't like having things forced down the back of my throat and then in my nose.
0: Yep. So I think that's, that is actually a good line to finish on. Um, do you want to say goodbye to the people again? I know you like goodbye doing Goodbye to the people. Come on, you know, your signature goodbye. Say it. Come on.
1: It's not mine, I'm afraid, lad. It's stolen from someone else's. I know it is. I know it is. Goodbye from him, and it's goodbye from me.